Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and teachers and lovers of the Bible everywhere in the world. Uh, this is going to be a party episode. It's after summer, so we're all chilling together. We have everybody <laughs> here on this episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, September 24th. And the passages that we're going to be talking about today are Exodus 16, 2 through 15, and then Jonah 3, 10 chapter 4 through 11. So we're going to try to like, you know, take all of that together. But first, we're going to start from Exodus 16. Am I right, guys? That's right. We've got a first reading Brady Bunch episode going on here. Yes, that's <laughs> right. We're all here. Um, what is this passage in Exodus? What's, what's going on here? Hmm. People are hungry. Yeah. This is the manna passage, right? The one where um, <clears throat> manna from heaven... Um, yeah, right. so they're just out of Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just out of Egypt. A month yeah. out, apparently, yeah. A month mm-hmm. out, and they've uh, passed into the wilderness, and uh, mm-hmm. now they're getting hungry. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. interesting because it, when it appears, it actually appears in a series of these similar stories of people being hungry or thirsty and God providing. And so it's almost like a, um, like a, a feast of these stories, if you will, about mm-hmm. thirst and hunger and and what happens when God shows up in the wilderness and and um, divinely provides for the people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also one of uh, several stories that feature the people grumbling, mm-hmm. right? Uh, com- complaining. Mm-hmm. So that there's a, I don't know if you'd even call this sort of a, a form or a genre or something, but there's this whole mm-hmm. series of the people complain and then stuff goes down that's right and i think that the 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 word for complaint in this text is the word loon which means to grumble against to blame mm-hmm. you know to make a case against and it appears like several times in the passage at the beginning of the narrative it's right at the center of it mm-hmm. and it is actually what causes god to intervene mm-hmm. even divinely mm-hmm. so in some sense it is a passage of complaint i guess yeah, and I love the fact that you lifted up that it's it's that it has that component of blame against. So it's not just yeah. like, oh, you know, whining. It's like this is your fault, dude. You brought us here and you <laughs> need to fix it. Indeed, indeed. Right. And this isn't the only like um set of readings where we get this grumbling. We get a parallel set of the readings in numbers, um, mm-hmm. which are also very similar, uh, grumbling, thirst, grumbling, hunger. Uh, but they end slightly differently than in Exodus, where we kind of have a more happy ending, a resolution where the people are fed um, and God seems to provide without much of the back and forth that we mm-hmm. get in numbers, where mm-hmm. a very similar story that shows up here in Exodus 16 appears in Numbers 11 and ends with a whole lot of people dead with the quail <laughs> still right. in their mouths in this like yeah, kind wow. of horrible <laughs> situation, like, yeah, where they, they haven't even swallowed yeah. the meat and they're dropping down dead. So yeah. <laughs> the word the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we know, there's two sides or at least, the, you know, a different way of telling the same story in numbers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and we've got a, a prettier, I think, picture in Exodus. Yeah, yeah. So the the source critic in me, the compositional critic, is like, ah, there's there's some doubling going mm-hmm. on here, right? Indeed, in the, yeah. In what's mm-hmm. preserved in the in the biblical canon, mm-hmm. yeah. and and uh, yeah, there there seem to be several little indicators that that there's sources being used in this. If you go um, beyond verse 15 all the way through the end of the story, it even ends with like a 
uh, conversion, like uh, mm. <laughs> from from Omer's to um, Afa, right? Afa, yeah, yeah. and Omer, and how to convert between them. So, like, there's a unit of measurement in the source text and the the compiler saying, "Oh, and by the way, this is how this converts to Afa." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and I think what you're saying too, if if I can reiterate, is that when you're when you're seeing these stories repeated in this way. What it's telling us is that this is kind of a fundamental, important memory that keeps yeah. getting reworked or ke- keeps getting retold uh, so that mm-hmm. the community is able to remember it from different angles. And each of the sources are kind of adding a bit more to the vocality, multivocality mm-hmm. of this story. Yeah. And I think when you, sorry, Tim, were you going to jump in there? I was going to say that that's like 10 times better than I said. It's a <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think narratively too, when you look at the whole expanse, the, the narrative effect of these stories being repeated and then sort of upping their intensity of the consequences yeah. is it really lends itself to this understanding of how the wilderness time had this really ambiguous nature of relationship mm-hmm. between God and God's people. At times it was like, we are hungry, we are thirsty. And God is like, then I will feed you and I will give you something to drink. And other times they're like, we're hungry and we're thirsty. And God's like, strike you down dead with the food still in your mouth. <laughs> That's right. um, so, you know, I, I think sometimes, especially in the Protestant world, we tend to romanticize like, oh, it's a wilderness wandering where you only rely on God. And yeah. it's like, yeah, but there's more to that story than just, you know, meets the eye. That's right. I think that reminds me a lot also of, uh, I think, a book that I read from James Kugel, who used to teach at Harvard. Um, on you know traditions in in the biblical text, the Hebrew the Hebrew Bible generally, mm. and and I think there is some kind of a tradition to wilderness. Right, yeah. if we step uh, if we step back and look behind the text. There's some like different sorts of traditions and beliefs about wilderness, and to a good extent, we see some of it represented here in the text in the way that it it's, it, it describes you know mm. the scenes mm. and the, mm-hmm. the flow of of, of events. Yeah, wilderness mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. So so if we're coming at this from like sources and and different memories that have been reiterated and core memories, what sort of preaching angles do you see might come out of that? I was thinking a lot about the the complaints, right? The mm-hmm. the the make a case against, you know, mm-hmm. the blame, right? I was thinking a lot about that in, you know, what that might necessarily mean, especially since for me in my reading it repeats itself a whole lot. And mm. I guess what, what I'm going to offer here is more of like a counter reading instead of like leaning towards what the text, you know, says and allows us to do. Um, because, you know, for a long time, a lot of early Christian interpreters have read the complaints as like a sign of, you know, ingratitude and, mm. you know, it's childish, it's faithless, you know, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But, you know, if you step a little back towards, you know, um, what what the experiences of the people in the text are, it sort of gives a different um, vibe. Mm. You know, these are people who had just been released from slaves, uh, mm. from slavery in Egypt, right? Most of them were born into slavery. They had no other way of, you know, living. Mm. They were on, on a journey in search of home, right? They were going mm. somewhere that they didn't know. So the uncertainty, um, wilderness. Uh, the temperatures and, you know, yeah. uh, some with children and so on and so forth. Essentially, they are experiencing suffering in a, in a really deep way. And on top of it all, before their hero Moses got them out of Egypt, uh, there was some kind of a promise. Like, I'm taking you to a place that is 
far better than where yeah. you are, right? A, a land, you know, filled with honey and milk and so on and so forth. And so I, I, I think that from that perspective, then the complaint will not just be, you know, faithless, you know, murmuring or childish murmuring, but it would rather be out of desperation and out yeah. of, um, you know, disappointment, right? Hopes cut short, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So instead of mm-hmm. reading, instead of reading the complaints as oh, unnecessary and that, you know, this is the way to trust God, not to make any complaints against God and God responds to faith and things like that. Why don't we also put the spotlight on the suffering of the people and read yeah. the text from that angle. So, you know, perhaps I would say if preachers are thinking about other ways of reading and looking at the text, maybe consider the conditions of the people. Not to mm. say that this is like historically accurate or factual or whatever, or the exodus actually happened. I think it's far beyond that. But as much as the text allows us to, yeah. um, thinking of the expectations of the people in light of the promise, in light of where they were told they were going and, you know, the hopes that they had, I think the complaints make sense. Yeah, the, the complaint is almost a, a way of holding God accountable to mm-hmm. God's promises, mm-hmm. like having high expectations for God. And, uh, you know, when when things aren't going the way that God has indicated that they ought to, mm-hmm. voicing that. And, and it's interesting, at least in the Exodus version here, God's not upset with their complaint. Right, when, exactly. when God hears hears it, God provides. Yes. And so there's a responsiveness to the to the complaint in this in this story. Yeah. That's an important point to make because as much as and the grumbling stands out because it's repeated what eight times in the in the Mm -hmm. chapter over and over. But the Mm -hmm. words God hears. So Shema is in there a lot too. So I I think Mm -hmm. as much as preachers and as tempting as it is to say, just blame these people that we've never met and have no relationship (laughs) to, like they're so horrible. The idea here is that God does hear in when, when we're uh, these legitimate needs that the people are complaining about, they need food, Mm -hmm. they need water, they need Mm -hmm. some sense of security. They need some sense of direction and leadership. And those are the things that people are crying out for. And the passage just does seem to show God being responsive, being open to providing mm-hmm. all of those things uh, in a timely way, right? So right there, right now, I can do that for you and I will do that for you. Mm-hmm. The other, mm-hmm. like, now that I have all these Hebrew Bible folks in this call, so um, <laughs> I'm really glad, Paul, you brought up this word loon. So yeah. one of the things that stood out to me in the passage was the sense of nostalgia that the people were holding. Mm-hmm for this relative safety that they experienced in Egypt, whatever, whether that was real or not, something in the past is holding them um, back in that they can't even appreciate the manna, especially in the, um, by the, mm-hmm. by the numbers passage, they're sick of it. They're tired mm-hmm. of this manna in the wilderness, but the, this word loon, the Brown diver, driver Briggs, I looked it up and they um, come up with this lexic, like lexical connection between loon, which is camp, overnight lodging, you know, kind of mm-hmm. that meaning. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. sort of think about it maybe in a negative sense when you get stuck in a place, when you're, yeah. you know, kind of, oh, um, you can't move on. Ooh. And so I found lovely. that to be really generative for me too, because I, as I think about my own life, what kinds of things hold me back from being able to be present, even if there's suffering in the circumstances, to be present to that suffering yeah, and open to what might be coming next, the milk and honey that Paul is referencing that you know, the people were promised, right? But it's holding, they're remembering the leeks and the garlic and the cucumbers and all yeah. of that in Egypt 
because they're the stuck. Pots. The flesh pots. I know. The King James I version, love right? that. I, what I mean, it's literally like cook, cooking pots habasar, like cooking pots of yes. flesh. It is like it's flesh pots, yes. like yes. delicious. <laughs> Even in the kind of the verbiage there, like the maybe the possible shift from like staying in a place for a temporary amount of time, lodging, camping, the word loon. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of negative hefil maybe sense where that we're looking at in the in the Hebrew where it's just sort of dug in and entrenched and unable to kind of keep keep going on the journey. Um mm. so for for folks that are thinking about maybe uh, a preaching angle, this idea of of um certain memories that paralyze us in place. Um mm. certain things that, mm. you know, relationships that, you know, that we, I don't know, really enjoyed at one point. Um, and then they ended and you sort of kind of look back on that as kind of a high point in your life. You'll never be able to get that back. But for most yeah. of us that have had heartbreak, we can also say there's another side to that, you know, to that valley. Like, and often you have to go through that experience yeah. of heartbreak to ever uh, maybe even meet that love that you, you know, have been longing for, for so long. Mm. 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 Yeah, I think there's some great sermon fodder there. What makes us not only stay in it? Well, and I think if you think about it too, like often the stuff that we get stuck in, not always, but often the stuff that we get stuck in, we get stuck in because it was something that sustained us Mm -hmm. in a past time, right? Like if you're just thinking of, you know, defense mechanisms and family systems theory, like the defense mechanisms that we have established, we've established because they kept us safe from something or they helped us survive something. And then we get stuck in them because they used to work Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they don't work anymore or they used to sustain us and the threat isn't there anymore or the opportunity Mm. isn't there anymore. But we're so in the habit of that. And that's where I think, you know, Paul and Rosie, what you're saying really comes together beautifully. Paul, you said these were people who were born into slavery Mm -hmm. and these are people who are longing for for what used to sustain them in slavery. Right. They're no longer in slavery, and yet they're longing for what used to sustain them. And I mm. wonder if there's a connection mm. there, Rosie, when you're thinking about what holds us back, what mm. what draws us back. One other thought I have just before we move on from flesh pots of Egypt, two thoughts actually. Number one, shout out to Rolf Jacobson if you're listening, who has a bluegrass b- group called the Flesh Pots of Egypt. Oh, <laughs> write this down. So, hey there, Rolf. Um, second thing is um, just simply, you know, I, I I was looking at that because I I wanted to see if it was actually, like I said earlier, flesh pots, and it is pots of flesh. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's an embodiment thing there mm-hmm. that is being longed for as well, that they've been called into the wilderness by this God who moves ahead of them, but who moves ahead of them in a cloud and in fire and isn't something that they can touch. In fact, when they get to the mountain, they can't even touch the mountain that that mm-hmm. God's body or God's presence has come to rest on. And so I wonder if there's a a longing for something physical and sure, which is not exactly faith. You know, it's mm. hard to it it's it's hard to have faith in something that is right in front of you in concrete because you you don't need to have faith. It's just right there. Mm-hmm. When you're being asked to to really take a leap of faith and you don't have that embodied concrete thing to guide you, that can be really scary. Mm. That's interesting. I haven't really thought about it that way, Rachel. I um I think maybe you're onto something there with the metaphor. And and there is in this text, right in the middle of it, this sort of extra bit where the presence of God shows up in a more tangible, experiential way for them where they've, they've felt sort of, um, you know, they're wondering if they've been abandoned 
by God yeah. out to die out here in the wilderness. And part of God's um, response is to provide the food they need. But the other part of God's response is to show up yeah. mm-hmm. in, mm. in the kavod of mm. God present mm. in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's this sort of like choreography in the text. They all sort mm. of like slowly turn yeah. <laughs> and yeah. look towards the wilderness. And there in the cloud is the presence of God. Yeah. And um, evidently, I mean, the way it's, it's told in the story, that's part of what they needed. They nice. needed to see that God really was with them. Mm. And th- that did it. They, they felt that God was with them. So, yeah. Yeah. I, just when you were talking about the presence of God and describing the kaboot and everything else, I just, you know, remembered, you know, how powerful it is to think of divine, you know, encounters and interventions mm. and miracles like this and providence even, mm. you know, as uh, a way of bringing relief, social economic relief to a suffering people, right? Yeah. Because often we have a way of thinking of, you know, miracle as like, you know, a display of omnipotence and the show off of the miracle worker's ability, right? So, mm. you know, we put all the light on the person working the miracle, even in prophetic texts, right? It's mm. all about Elijah and the way Elijah and Elisha are introduced is by, you know, recounting the series of miracles that, you know, they perform. But it's it's also really inspiring to see that miracles don't happen for the sake of the miracle worker but primarily for the receiver of the miracle Mm. right and in this particular case where suffering people in need of Mm. food hungry desperate that a miracle or god can show up divinely in a way that will bring them relief right Mm. what's more beautiful than divine interventions like that right yeah Mm -hmm. wow Mm. food and presence Mm -hmm. yes Mm mm-hmm you know, one one other thing that uh, struck me as I was reading through this was the way that um, the complaint isn't actually directed against God. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's directed it's at Moses, Moses, and, Aaron. Moses and Aaron. Yeah, and the two of them go to great lengths to emphasize in the story that uh, this complaint is not actually against us. You're actually complaining against, against God. God. Yeah. And um, in other complaint stories, like Moses takes the complaint and we get this little like side conversation (laughs) between Moses and God. Here, God hears the complaint directly and responds directly, re-emphasizing that this is about the people's relationship with God. And sort of um, Moses and Aaron get sort of pushed to the the side in a way that they're very happy with because they don't want to be the... (laughs) you know, <laughs> middlemen in this uh, triangulation, right? right? So, right. Um, but but that seems like a really interesting mm. feature of the text. And I was thinking about how that might um, feed into a preaching angle or a pitfall. And I mm. found a little bit of both. Like mm. I could imagine that one way that people could interpret or maybe even preach this is uh, y'all, when you complain to the pastor, yeah <laughs> you're actually complaining against god oh my god yeah <laughs> so don't do that no Very complaints possible. to the pastor <laughs> that's and hilarious. um actually that's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. interpretation of this it passage yeah. really. but mm-hmm. it's somewhat problematic also mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. and a bit, uh, a bit very and i was thinking but how how can you take that point that's in this passage and um and turn it into something that would actually be um, healthy and meaningful for a congregation. And I was thinking that one of the problems 
in the complaint is that the people have kind of written God out of the picture. Right. Like they're Mm -hmm. not, they're not atheists, but in this instance, they're thinking on a, what we might call a secular plane, right? Like they're out here in the wilderness. They don't have food. They're going to die. And they complain to the people, to the human leaders. Right. And it's important. It seems important to Moses and Aaron, to God and to the narrator that God be written back into the picture Mm. here. Yeah. No, I think that's hugely important. I wrote an article for Working Preacher a while back where I, I looked at um, a couple texts in Exodus, and you see actually a progression that intensifies that the people don't just complain, but then they start to say to Moses, to you who brought us out of Egypt. Like yeah. they actually even sideline God further um, throughout the book of Exodus. So it's this really, again, interesting, like you were saying, the divine, the divine versus the embodied physical representation of God who is not God and has not done the things God has done and yet bears both the blame and then somehow the credit in a backwards way as well. And God's Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 let's, let's be clear about who did what here. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's emphasized in this passage like that, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. provision of, of the manna and quail and the presence, the, the sort of theophany here Mm -hmm. is so that you'll know that Mm -hmm. it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Egypt. Mm -hmm. And it's this, um, reassertion of a kind of theistic view of the world. And I, I think that could preach quite Mm. well. I mean, I, I, just like confessionally, I, I feel like in my own life when things are going rough or I, um, you know, take a look at how the world is, uh, I, I tend to, um, uh, erase God out of the picture and just sort of bemoan the state of our world on Mm -hmm. a human level. And I feel like this text is kind of nudging me to expand my perspective a bit Mm. to, to think where is God's kavod in this messed up world. Yeah. And, and mm. yeah, I just wonder how a more uh, intentionally theistic vision of things might change the way we respond or, or move, move through the world. Mm. I, I would want to hear a sermon about that. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, and it's actually a really nice transition to Jonah yeah. who, who has God at the center of things, but in a bit of a backwards upside down way, mm. because, uh, Jonah <laughs> knows who's to blame. <laughs> like he's <laughs> fully aware of the fact that God is going to be merciful and gracious. And in, and so he's fully on board with like, God's at the center of this, but it's upside down because that's a problem for Jonah. Yeah, like that's is. a big problem. Yeah. I love reading that that uh, quote from Jonah in oh chapter my gosh. four. There, like, this is what I said when I was still in my country. I, I knew that you're gracious, <laughs> you're slow to anger, you're always so loving. <laughs> my, my Hebrew professor Mark Thronfite used to say, "This is Jonah's Yosemite Sam moment." I know you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and bounding in steadfast love. <laughs> Looney Tunes throwback. Like, kill me now. It's like, I love this. Like, <laughs> I hate it here. <laughs> we didn't know that Jonah was 16 when he was called. Oh, God. But- <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah. so for the Jonah passage, then uh, we've got the um, sort of the end of chapter three and chapter four in the lectionary. I, I always recommend if you're preaching on Jonah to find a way to to wrap in the rest of the story, even oh, if you yeah. just sort of summarize the the whole, because um, uh, the lectionary is sort of jumping in mm-hmm. on a story already in progress. And, you know, 
back in the day, mm. one might have been able to presume that everybody was familiar mm. with with these stories, but I, I wouldn't assume that. Um, so so having some sort of uh, a little bit of literary context for folks is uh, can come in handy. And also add to the humor of the story, because I think that's oh one of my, this is what just, it jumped into the funny, the sort of punchline at the end, yeah, right? But then you, you kind of need to get the whole lead up of like Jonah yeah. and God and the whale and running away from God already. Yeah, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I kind of know what you're going to do there. I'm definitely not going to preach there. Fine, I'm going to preach there. And then have the most <laughs> successful like preaching mission ever because the entire <laughs> nation like falls Falls to their knees and repents to such an extent that even God relents and says, yes. you know what? These folks are mm. truly, truly sorry. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, this is amazing. And that's when we jump in. It's, it's right. God has now yeah. decided yeah. this. They have made a genuine repentance here. And I am turning around from what I said. And Joan is like, I knew you'd do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, side note, preachers, preachers, pay attention here. Jonah's sermon was five words. Yeah. <laughs> and instant repentance from the whole population. Oh my God. Careful, careful, because we're a preaching podcast. So does that mean we only get 10 words? <laughs> Brevity is the soul of yeah. wit. That's exactly. <laughs> Oh gosh. But my favorite thing is so is so I was looking at this. Is it right for you to be angry? Oh, I love oh, that line. Oh, oh. It kind of punches my gut. Yeah. Oh. Is it right for you to be angry? Because it, 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 I looked at the Hebrew and so is it is it do you do well to be angry? Like so the Yatab yeah. is the one that kind of caught me there. It's like, are you are you doing what's best for you? Because mm -hmm. the at the end, kind of like to you, for you, yeah. Yeah. what's happening yeah. here? Is it is it good for you to be angry yes. in this way? Mm -hmm. Rosie preach. And then again <laughs> in verse nine, right? So God yep, repeats repeated. the question, right? Yeah, again. Mm -hmm. Is it right for you to is it is it best for you to be angry now about this bush that I grew up for you and gave you a little bit of a sense of, you know, the generosity of God, the mercy, right. the like shade that you experience in the midst of the sun? Yes. Mm -hmm. Angry enough to die is what he says. Yeah. But then it's the play in the language there. It says, literally, it says, I, I do well to be angry. Yeah. The Yatab is there. I'm, I'm good mm -hmm. to be angry. That's what I'm supposed to do, even mm -hmm. to death. I liked, and I thought again of the Israelites crying out for like, yeah, no, it's right for me to, this is what's right. This is what's just. Mm -hmm. And give me what I want, even to death, right? You might as well kill me here because I was better off there. And I was like, there, the cry sounded so similar to what was going on there and here that I was like, if preachers are looking at it, like this resonation, like between these two texts. No. Yeah. Yeah. What's, mm -hmm. what's, what is it good to be angry about? Mm. Um, Cause mm. there are things where like, um, Tim, you're mentioning too, we look out in the world and this desire for justice, it moves us to anger, um, yeah. a, a righteous anger. And that is what Jonah is saying. I have a righteous anger. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And it really kind of cut me. I'm like, because yeah. I use yeah. that righteous anger quite a lot, you know, like yeah. I think as a, a kind of a, a knee jerk reaction when I look out at the world. And then I hear this question, is it right? Is that best yeah. for you to be angry? Yeah. Oh, I just I just zeroed in on the preposition there. It's it's is it right for you? Yeah, I know, I know. Ahetev chara lach. 
Yes. And, and it's yeah. it's I I uh, I might translate it. Does it do you any good? Oh, it's yeah. good to be angry. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, and what's so interesting about Jonah, this is one of the reasons Jonah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Okay, friends, we've heard this before, but it's true. Um, <laughs> is because like, yeah, Jonah absolutely has the right to be angry here. These are the Ninevites. This is the big, big city of Assyria. And the Assyrians steamed into the Northern Kingdom. They destroyed it. They were merciless. They like pulled people out. They exiled them. From that action, we have, Samaria in the New Testament yeah. where people sort of worship God, but not in the way they're quote unquote supposed to. Like, yeah, the Assyrians were the bad guys. This is like, this is like God showing up to Luke Skywalker and yeah. saying to the Luke Skywalker, is it good for you to be so angry about this emperor? And Luke's like, yes, yes, actually, <laughs> I have the right. But if we run with that metaphor, no, it wasn't good for him. So he he did have the right to be angry if you're still thinking Luke Skywalker, but if he gives in to that anger, it ends up destroying him as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see this book. I love to put this book in conversation with the book of Nahum because mm-hmm. Nahum is just like absolutely PO'd at the Assyrians and super glad that someone is finally destroying them. And mm-hmm. this is almost like the end, not maybe the end, but the other side of that coin. Like, yeah, yeah you absolutely have the right to be angry here. But what does it do to you? When is it good for you to just be consumed by that anger? And Jonah's like, yeah, enough to die. And God's like, that's kind of my point. This is is my point exactly. Yeah. And remember, those those two books are on the same scroll. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the scroll of the twelve, right? So so, yeah. um, Which and and again that uh, that sort of credo there of um, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, bombing and stuff. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. repeated in in several of those books Mm -hmm. in the scroll. Yes. Uh, not mm-hmm. just here in Jonah, and, mm-hmm. and so that's uh, kind of a a running theme. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a there's a conversation happening about what that means and who it applies to. Yeah, uh, in in those books. And and I think I mean I I would at a certain level just want to honor Jonah as well in his anger. Uh, were you going to go there, Paul? I was going to go there. Go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, the the desire for vengeance, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and and the readiness that Jonah has for Nineveh to die, right? Like these people do not deserve God's mercy versus the way God takes all of that desire, right? Negative energy, if you'd like, and dissolves all of that in mercy and goodness mm. and turns it into something mm. good and, mm. you know, re- reverts it back. But certainly... You know, there's something to honor yeah. about Jonah's like courage to even be angry, yes. <laughs> right? Yes, with God about about that. And I kept thinking, boy, I'm not angry enough with mm. God about mm. some things, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I I tend to even personally, I tend to be you know try to you know polish up my relationship with God like yeah. way too you know clean. Like I try I try to take out all of the you know, negative energy. And I'm like, I'm coming to God. I don't have to come to God with anger and all of those things. Yeah. But Jonah is exemplifying something completely different. It's like, yes, you know, I know what you're doing and I knew you were going to do this and I didn't want to participate in this. And mm-hmm. because of that, I am angry at you. And, you know, it's, it's bold, it's courageous. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I like about Jonah. Yeah, I've written a little bit about anger. Um, and in my <laughs> nice. study of anger in the Psalms, I had to go through and study all of the places where we can say that a human is angry at God. And there's very Mm. few, there's like seven of them in the whole Mm. Hebrew Bible. 
this is the one that gets closest to a human actually naming explicitly to God, I am mad at you. We never never see that in the Hebrew Bible. No one Mm. names it explicitly. But here, what's so... What's so great is God says, is it good for you to be mad? And Jonah's just like, yep, buddy, it is. So, <laughs> and, and what's beautiful about that is it doesn't provoke anger in God. It exactly. does not, you know, I mean, God honor is, so God honors Jonah's anger by engaging with it and by talking through it. And, and because of that, just like you're saying, Paul, I think we should honor it as well. And in some ways learn from it, just mm-hmm. like you were saying that, that, this is almost an invitation for us too to say, are you putting your anger in the right place? Or as you said, are you cleaning it up before you bring it to God? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I was also impressed with the the response of God to mm. Jonah's anger, right? It's it's not um reprimand, at least not directly. Mm-hmm. It's questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does this do you any good? It's so Shouldn't, rabbinic, right? This should I be rabbi? concerned about these people? <laughs> should I be concerned about their animals? Yeah. And it, it's sort of God's engaging mm-hmm. with Jonah around this. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so here's where I think there's a tie-in to the gospel reading, right? So I'm listening yeah. to this and I'm like, this. so Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16 is the pericope for this Sunday. It's the parable of the wealthy landowner who has a vineyard and he goes out in the morning to get workers. He goes out at 9 a.m., noon, three o'clock, and then at five o'clock. And each Mm -hmm. time he promises, I will pay you whatever is right in verse four, right? So that word right is there. I'll pay you whatever's right. Um, And then in verse 15 at the end, when the workers obviously in the afternoon who say they bore the heat of the day, they're upset because they can see that everybody's getting exactly the same wage. They're getting exactly the same daily wage. And they said, why shouldn't we get paid more? We were here since 6 a.m., since dawn, and we should be paid more. And the landowner's question is, are you envious because I am generous, right? Yeah. And it was so interesting because when I looked at the at the Greek, it was like, is your eye, is what, it's your eye that's the problem. Is your eye bad because I am agathos, because I'm good? So oh, wow. is there something about your vision that gets dulled? because yeah. of what Ooh. I've done, right? Because Ooh, of that. Yeah. And it cut Go. me when I saw that. I saw it because Come he on. said, it's it's about this word just, I will pay whatever is right. The word is dikaion. Yeah. So whatever is mm. just, yeah. whatever is, but that word justice is what's being played with in Jonah, in Exodus, mm-hmm. and here in, the, in this parable of like, mm-hmm. what is justice versus, is it, grace, mercy, like this unmerited. Well, I mean, just like stop right there, right? You know, there's this play in the gospels. What is truth? This is yeah. a great, you know, parable for that. What is justice? And right. And so mm-hmm. this human's desire for a justice that includes vengeance, right? What Paul was yeah. saying. That's right. Revenge, crushing, you know, that yeah. power <laughs> of God. And then God turning that around and saying, here's what God's justice actually looks like. And that oh. somehow is something that it cannot be included in my vision because my eye yeah. is is dull. I just yeah. I just got I just got teared up because what what occurred to me when you were talking, Rosie, is like God is God is saying what justice looks like is the kavod Adonai is yeah. like the presence, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's right. It's yeah. the presence that that we need that that is of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Like that's justice, and we would rather have justice that is clear and vengeance and always on our side. That's right. Uh, yeah. Oh, Rosie. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's in in Jonah. I think that's for me. That's one of the major major points of the book of Jonah is that that creed about God's character. Yeah, was interpreted as God is gracious towards us. Yeah, slow to anger against us, abounding yes. in faithfulness <laughs> to us. And Jonah's <laughs> questioning that and saying, "This is not about something just specific to us. This is innate yeah. to God's yes. character." Mm. Mm. And um, wherever God finds repentance, that that mercy, that grace, that compassion is going to flow out in that direction. And so you don't get to say this is for us, but not for them, even if the them is like, you know, Nazi Germany. Yeah, Yeah. right. Right. (laughs) Or the Assyrians. Well, or I mean, this is 9-11, folks, on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're coming up here on 9-11 on the week that we're recording this. But I think that that speaks to a larger cultural moment of who are our Ninevites that we would rather God not give mercy, Mm -hmm. justice, kavod, Adonai, to. And I think one interesting thing about all of, you know, the sets of the set of characteristics about God is that it is not up to us to determine how God um, displays these, Mm. you know, traits to the rest of the world, right? It is God that decides how God wants to be God to the world. Mm. And even though Jonah had hopes and had expectations and suspected that God would do this, he couldn't overturn that, you know, by not going, by not preaching, by not, you know, (laughs) by sort of pushing back (laughs) against God. Eventually, God was like, you don't show me who I show mercy to, yeah. right? You don't, you don't decide when I want to be slow to anger or steadfast in love or relent about punishment. I decide what I want to do mm. uh, because I am all of these things together, right? Mm. And that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea that you can't stop God from being God. You can either let God be God or you can let God be God while you're covered in whale puke. Your choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this this um, theme of God's um, God's prerogative to show mm. grace and mercy wherever does kind of show up back in that Exodus mm-hmm. passage as, oh, yeah. as well. Even though it's yeah. the Jonah one that's meant to go with the gospel in the lectionary, yeah. it also kind of shows up in the Exodus passage a little little beyond the lectionary reading uh, in verses seventeen through eighteen. Mm-hmm. It describes the the collecting of the manna for the first time, and it makes a specific note that those who um, gathered um, way more than they were, they were like worked harder than they were supposed to, <laughs> and gathered a whole yeah. bunch. Turns out, and when they counted, they had just exactly <laughs> the same as everyone else. And those who were kind of lazy and just you know collected a little, they ended up having is just as much as everyone else. <laughs> yeah. And I just I found that little note in the text to be really intriguing, like. Um, even in these sort of extreme uh, circumstances, there's this divine ideal there mm. of a kind of egalitarian ethic mm-hmm. um, that that pushes against, um, I don't know, our, our human desire to consume and to accumulate. Yeah. And there's a sense of God's provision reaching out to those who've worked more than their share and those who've worked less than their share. Mm. God's mercy, God's compassion on the people goes out evenly throughout. Mm. That just strikes me because, you know, when we were reading the Exodus 16 passage, I was reminded of this idea of daily bread that, um, that yeah. Jesus prays for in the, in the, our father. And it, if, if it's connected to 
all of this, when Jesus says, give us our daily bread, mm-hmm. to me, if, if we're now also adding the Jonah piece that we've picked up too, is that it's, it's an incredibly generous prayer that it is mm-hmm. for all and that is that everyone gets what they need. You know, that's mm-hmm. just to me just kind of blows my mind and changes the way that I'm, you know, I might engage this prayer that that line, give us our, give mm-hmm. us our bread, give us what we mm-hmm. need. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther has a nice bit on that in the small catechism, but that's just for my Lutherans out there. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, um, <clears throat> I'm teaching a Pauline theology class this, uh, this fall, which is funny on multiple levels, um, but also a lot of fun. And one of the things we're doing is weekly Greek translations. This, I promise this, this applies. Um, and I had a student who was translating second Corinthians eight, seven through nine, and it has a phrase in there that's often translated the grace of Jesus Christ. Mm. And this is in the concept we're looking at, um, economic rhetoric this week in Paul. And so she's started to replace the word grace of Jesus Christ with the generosity of Jesus Christ. Oh, and I just like, I just, nice. was, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's yeah. just something really delightful in expanding our view of grace in yeah. including this sense of generosity, generosity as well. Yeah. Mm. So that's a shout out to Nicole. I'm doing all the shout outs today. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I feel like we've touched on a whole lot. Uh, if I, if I were preparing a sermon, uh, I feel like I've got lots of uh, lots of food to mm. to prep. Lots of manna. <laughs> lots of manna. Mm-hmm. Just the right amount, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, y'all, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and uh, I'm loving both of these passages even more than when we started. So, thanks for some great conversation, everyone. Yeah, this is fun. Okay, so that'll that'll bring our uh, party episode to a close for this week. First reading is produced by all four of us, me, Rosie, Paul, and Rachel. You can find all of our back episodes uh, on just about everything you'd ever want to read at uh, firstreadingpodcast.com. We're also uh, hanging out on the Facebook uh, and posting our episodes there from time to time. And we'd love to see those comments that show up and uh, we love to interact with those. So find us there or send us a note at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to interact with you in that way as well. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we hope you have a, a great week and enjoy preaching from one or more of these passages. Until next time, I'm Tim. I'm Paul. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rosie. Happy preaching. Oh, shoot, I messed it up. Sorry. Oh, no. Can you just cut me out there? No, I'm going to include that. (laughs) It did. It sounded pretty good. (laughs) Rachel has to have the last word every time.